We made this. Ladies and gentlemen, it was a cold-blooded, premeditated murder. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Red and Buried podcast. I'm Frankie. I'm Sarah. And today we have a really exciting guest with us today. The wonderful Miss Ava Glass has joined us. Hello, hello. I'm so excited to be here. So excited to have you here. And um, before we get into your bio and everything, I just I just want to do a humble brag that I actually met Ava Glass and <laughs> at uh, Harrogate Crime Festival and no pressure or anything but it was you are one of the most interesting people ever so um i'm so, so excited to talk to you so this are the stories anyway i'm gonna shut up and i'm gonna let sarah talk more yeah that's no pressure at all lovely <laughs> so bio frankie wrote this so any compatience consultant for the home office the young adult series was published by little brown and went on to sell over a million and a half copies worldwide a web series inspired by the books clocked up well over a million views In 2020, the books were optioned for television. She later wrote the Echo Killing series published by St. Martin's Press and co-wrote the fantasy series The Secret Fire with French author Karina Rosenfeld. Her new book, Alias Emma, is a breakneck race against the clock thriller, which sees British spy Emma Makepeace find herself in an exhilarating chase across London with 12 hours to deliver her asset after Russia hacks the city's security cameras. She currently lives in Surrey with her excellent husband and beautiful dogs. She's also one of the loveliest, coolest people in the entire world. I like that bio. That's all right. (laughs) Good. All right. In that case, Frankie gets the credit for it as well. So (laughs) thank you. Well done, Frankie. Yeah. Thank you very much. I guess also just to avoid kind of confusion, do you mind if we talk about your real name and your... Oh, no, no, it's fine. Ava Glass is a pseudonym and we're really open about it. So it's going to be super confusing for everybody (laughs) down the line, I think. (laughs) But I'm fine to talk about it. Cool. So this also just to check, should we call you Ava or should we call you Christy throughout this? What would you prefer? Call me Ava. I'm getting used to it. It's a cool name. Yeah, oh, I, I love like it. it. <laughs> really cool. Do you feel when you when you're Ava Glass, do you feel like you are a different person when you oh, write almost? Kind of, because I sort of developed a kind of um, I don't know, like a particular kind of Christie for the young adult novels. And I, you don't ever tell your whole life story. You know, when you're an author, you tell bits of it and you choose the bits that you're going to tell for that particular person who you are. So I became a certain person for that. And I do feel like Ava is a different person because her experiences come from a different part of my life, which I have never talked about as a young adult author. It just sort of never came up. Yeah, I guess it wouldn't. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> I love it. It fits in really well with the kind of spy theme bent that the book's taken in recent uh, years. And it's the first of a series, isn't it, Alias Emma? Is that right? Yes, it is. The second book is already written and uh, we're editing it now. And so, yeah, it comes out next summer so I'm, oh, I'm excited amazing. about that one too I'm so glad it's a series because I'm, I love I love her I love Emma Makepeace and I love the the characters that surround her as well like it's, you've created such a, a perfect universe for her to exist in with oh. so many rich characters so thank you so much that's it's I have this thing about side characters that and I love a book that does this so I always try to do it myself and that is each one you need to be able to imagine their whole world their whole life even though you only see them on the page here and there and so I try really hard to do that because otherwise they're interchangeable and I want you to remember even people you only see once or twice because they're likely to come back in later books so it's it's just part of the um 
the thing I love most about writing a series, really. You really laid the groundwork perfectly. I guess while we're talking about the whole writing thing, <laughs> seeing as, you know, that's what you do. <laughs> the thing. Yeah, that whole thing. Uh, what do you enjoy most about the writing process and what do you enjoy least about it? I suppose the thing I enjoy most about it is the invention and the magic of it, because there is in my particular, like, I simply believe there's a magic to it. It's not like, oh, I'm so super talented. I can do this. I feel like, <laughs> I, I feel like there's a bit of skill. So um, I've always been a writer all my life. I was a journalist and I was an editor and I was a, basically a jobbing writer for hire. I've never not written. So that bit I know I can do, but the making up worlds, making up actual people who even I can kind of forget I don't know in real life, that bit I can't explain and I don't understand. And so I just call it the magic part when it just sort of comes together in a way that I don't trust an author who says they understand how that happens because it's like dreaming. It is in the same way that you can tell me why I dream and what the dreams are for, but the crazy nonsense that goes on inside a dream, that other world, nobody can explain that, not really. And to me, that's writing a novel. That's exactly the same. Okay, so that's my favorite part. <laughs> What's the least favorite? Least, the least favorite part is just, I suppose it's the, um, well, for everybody, it's the empty page. So let's take that off the, the list because everybody's going to say the same thing. I suppose the hardest part is not knowing how good it is and you never do know. So you write a book, I write a book and I get to the end of it and every single time I have never written a book where I didn't think, well, that was terrible. <laughs> that's <just> really? <laughs> every time. And it, wow. I think it's, the first draft phenomenon, because it is terrible. Like there are very few good first drafts in this world. They're like a skeleton. And um, so you get to the end and you think that's so awful. I'm never going to be able to fix it. And that moment of just like stomach dropping terror, <laughs> which I've now had 14 times. <laughs> Your poor stomach. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm just like, oh God, that's it. That's all I had. I've, I've used it up. I don't have anything left. And then you go back to the beginning. Every writer does this and um, read it again. And this time you make all the changes that are going to make it a good book, like or a better book, a book that you don't hate. And that second stage that's the fun part. That part is when it starts to come together and you're like, oh, wait, actually, actually, I can keep this book. I'm quite good at this, actually. <laughs> I was going to say, is there a moment where you suddenly go, actually, this is quite good, isn't it? Or you always got that little thing in the back of your head going, oh, I'm rubbish. <laughs> okay, I'd say it's both. It's like in cartoons, the good angel and the like yeah. bad devil sitting on your shoulders. Yeah. <laughs> They're definitely there. So like, I'll write it like a really like crazy good scene. And I'm like, ha that is quantifiably good. That's <laughs> good scene the rest of the book is terrible <laughs> bad voice <laughs> I'm always really fascinated when I mean I've spoken to quite a few you know we've spoken to a few authors on here and ones that I've, I've met at events and things like that and I'm always fascinated by actually how insecure writers tend to be because whenever I say to them you know they say like have you ever tried writing anything and I'm like oh I'm too insecure and they're like yeah no me too I hate everything I'm, I'm terrible and I'm like yeah. wow so but it's, it's obviously something you overcome as you go then through that process Yes, I think, I mean, I know people in real life who I know could be amazing authors if they sat down and wrote, if they really did it, I could name you three talented, just brilliant, smart people who won't do it because they say, I just, I can't. And I think the difference between an author and a talented non-author is just this, I, like, I couldn't not do it, if that makes sense. Like, for me, once I, once I have an idea in my head for a book, 
I've got to write it out and see if it works. And in fact, Alias Emma is sort of the result of that because I pitched it to my agent as something completely different, a different name and a different genre for me because I've never written espionage. And her first reaction was, women don't read espionage. It's not a good genre to get into. And I knew that already because I hadn't read much espionage. There isn't much espionage that appeals largely to women. It's a very masculine genre and it can be quite an intimidating genre to read. And I, and I, so I said, yeah, I know you're right. And I shouldn't do this, but let me just write it out of my system. Let me just write the book. Cause I've got this character and I can't get her out of my head. And I've got this idea. And she said, I love the idea. Cause I, pitched it to her as a sort of a, a gender flipped speed you know the film speed with Keanu Reeves yes, love it that's something I've, I've wanted to do that because I saw it on a plane in the last international trip I took before the world ended in 2019 <laughs> <laughs> and I drank a lot of wine and I watched speed and I thought damn that is still a good movie like it's a good mm. movie so fun just doesn't stop it's utterly relentless and everybody in it is beautiful and it just all happens so fast and I just thought, I want to write that, but I want her to save him because there are moments when he, she almost does. Mm. And I thought if they'd been brave enough to flip that around and if she, if, if Sandra Bullock were the soldier and Keanu Reeves were an innocent man. And basically, if you think about it, that's the plot of Alias Emma. That's what I wrote. Yeah. And I think that's why it's so, it's so exciting and engaging to read, particularly, I guess, as women reading it, because you finally feel like, oh, we're not the damsel in distress anymore. <laughs> what a refreshing change of pace, Yes, you know? And there's still kind of an equality in it, though, because Michael, who she her asset, who is she, she's trying to deliver, like, you know, he he he's not completely helpless. Thankfully, yes. he's still, yeah. still got a head in his shoulders. Yeah, he's smart. I mean, he's a doctor. He's just not a spy. So mm. he doesn't anticipate things the way she does. But once he realizes what the situation is, like his just his intelligence helps. Like she can use that. She sees that. And she's always one thing that I, I, I like about her is that in it, she's often thinking, would he make a good spy? And, you know, at the beginning, she thinks, oh, he actually would because he's so smart. And then later she realizes he's too nice and she thinks, no, he wouldn't. And that says also a lot about her because she knows how tough she is, how tough she's had to become to do this job. I have to say, reading it, I kind of, funnily enough, actually, when I first read it, the first thing I thought was, this is the perfect book to read on an aeroplane because I fly to Australia every couple of years. My parents are out there and I have this thing where I always watch, I never watch like thriller action movies ever, but on a plane, like James Bond, all that sort of thing. Cause it's like that perfect relentless escapism um, yes. that just keeps you occupied. And it, yeah, I kind of got that vibe. So I was reading it. I was like, I could read this on a plane and actually just sit and read it straight for, you know, six hours mm -hmm. or whatever and not put it down and completely lose track of time, which is brilliant. But the overwhelming feeling I got when I was reading was this must have been so fun to write and not to take away from all the hard work that I'm sure went into it. But it just seemed really enjoyable. Yeah, because I wrote so much of it during um, lockdown, during the pandemic. And so I used to live in London and I now live just outside of London, but I couldn't go to London physically. Like we literally weren't allowed, yeah. which is so weird when you think about it. Mm. And um, so this was my sort of like my, I would escape to London in my mind and go, like I set it in places I know really well. And I used to, you know, go out a lot at night in London and make my way home on various means when I lived there and when I was young. So this was um, sort of like, I got to retrace all that again mm. in my mind. I mean, I obviously had a map up as well because I don't trust myself, <laughs> but that part of it, I, I adored. And I loved whenever it just, the pace let up. Well, I just, there was a fight. I just had a fight <laughs> <laughs> or gunfight. 
gunshots. <laughs> it really does feel like a love letter to London in, in itself yeah. as well. You can really tell that you have a, lo- a love for the city. And do you think you you come into that? Obviously, you you weren't born in this country, but do you so do you come with it kind of with a, a, a especially, I guess, in a way outside perspective that gives you a different kind of appreciation for the city, do you think? Probably, maybe. I mean, I think all immigrants have a kind of a almost a I don't know what you call it like almost an extreme affection for the country Mm. that took them in and um I definitely have that like I when my friends my British friends are critical of various things I'm like it's not that bad (laughs) it could be much worse (laughs) you should see see Mississippi you know or (laughs) whatever like I But um, I, I do. And London itself, like the years that I first years that I spent there when I moved there, I was young and I had this great job in the center that I just stumbled into. And it just felt like and I made all these friends all at once in that way you do in a big city. And it just felt like my life changed in an instant when I moved there. And I felt like, yeah, I do adore the city. I, I think look back on those years with huge affection. And um, yeah, this was in many ways my my big hug to London. Like what a place. I'm not sure if I can ask this, so please don't answer if you don't want to, but does London feature in the sequel or do we move to a new location? Well, the sequel actually, okay, so London is at the beginning and Mm -hmm. it's sort of tops and tails. It's at the beginning and the end. And in the middle, it all goes a bit proper um, sort of James Bond le Carre and that she goes on the, on the, um, how to put this? I guess I can just say it. She goes undercover on an oligarch super yacht. And so she's in the Met and she's going from sort of um, one city to another as the yacht moves and she has no control over it. So yeah, we get to see in that one, we go to Saint-Tropez, we go to Nice, go to Barcelona and it all comes back to London at the end because London is the center of sort of spidum in a way oh love it can't wait thank you for answering that and not telling me to well I won't swear on the podcast but yeah thank you I'm trying not to do <laughs> sounds like perfect escapism as well all those locations oh my god it sounds like a holiday that we all sorely need to go yes. on that boat yes exactly <laughs> even with an oligarch I was going to say maybe without the Russian oligarchs but I could probably do have money that for a yacht holiday at the moment I reckon I know mm. me too <laughs> so one of the questions that we ask everyone is if you had to be a character from your book who would you be and why it's such a tough one because I like so many of them and I want to say Emma but her life is really really hardcore exhausting (laughs) I know I get tired (laughs) just thinking about it (laughs) so I've decided I would rather be Charles Ripley love Ripley Ripley's the his experience his like all that there's so much that he doesn't carry on the surface he is the absolute perfect spy and I'm not convinced even Emma knows that much about him not really we get to learn a little more in book two than we do in book one but like these like little bits just show that there's so much going on beneath the surface and he's so intelligent he knows his enemies like nobody else he understands the Russian spy agencies this is because he was in the dying days of of the uh Soviet Union he Mm. was based in Moscow and so he saw the end of it and then the beginning of the new Russia and he is the one who really understands them and I just I just love that he um when he comes onto the page I feel really confident things are about to get really serious I love Ripley I thought he was such a I mean speaking of someone with uh intense daddy issues also a bit like Emma (laughs) perhaps and I really felt like Ripley I could like I could totally see her her want to kind of you know obviously be work with him closely learn from him but also get his admiration and respect like it's I want it from him as well. I don't even know how that will happen for me. But he's such a, again, like you say, he's he's a perfect spy. 
And I like, no, no spoilers, but later on, she's like, she sees him without a tie. And that's quite a thing. <laughs> like he's not wearing a tie. You know, uh, he's just so committed to that world. Yeah, he takes on his own persona in it. And I agree completely. His approval would mean everything to me. I'm not sure I'd ever earn it, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't need to going to be him then you can just approve of yourself that's true oh my god I I did base he always has a cigarette case in his hands and I literally based that on my own cigarette case which I still have from when I used to smoke cigarettes years ago which I quit for health but I still have the case it's just a black um, enamel antique 1950s cigarette case so that's the bit of me that I gave Charles Ripley nice it's nice to put something of yourself in every character do you think or not all of them I don't know if you put some of yourself, I mean, you must, there's a saying, if you want to understand yourself, write a book about someone else. And so you you must, because it all comes out of your brain. But I think I'd probably just take bits of people I admire, um, or I like, or I dislike. I certainly, when I'm looking for a bad guy, I, I have plenty to base that on. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> previous bosses, previous landlords, it's, it's an easy. <laughs> you just keep a little notebook. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You are um, obviously one of the reasons why I I know from talking to you that you wrote Alias Emma was because you were getting kind of sick of a lot of the misogyny that exists in the traditional espionage kind of stories. So they're not typically written with women in mind. But aside from that, what's a typical crime genre trope that you are a bit sick of at this point? Okay, so in espionage, sexism is the main trope that bothers me. And Mm. so we'll take that off the table. In crime, I would say... This is one I don't think I'll ever write because it is so written right now. You can close your eyes in a bookshop and pick up a crime novel. And if it doesn't have a child in it that is dead, missing or in a coma, (laughs) and the mother is the only one who knows how to find the the criminal and the police will not listen and the father cannot be trusted. I I really want that particular storyline to go into the sea for a while. There are some (laughs) very good books that have been written with that storyline, but I think we have enough and I think it needs to go float on a raft while we write other things for a bit that would be my my trope that I just have read so many times recently or in the last sort of decade that I'm ready for us to move to something else you're right I think drift out to sea for a bit come back with something fresh guys like yes. yeah maybe the child isn't in a coma maybe it's okay maybe the yeah. child finds his mother or something I don't know maybe the child solves the crime that would be fine maybe the child kidnapped itself <laughs> maybe it just ran away because it was tired of that storyline because <laughs> his father can't be trusted exactly that's a wise child <laughs> Um, so along those lines, sort of in that case, what was the last book that you read and loved? Clearly not a story about a kidnapped child. <laughs> <laughs> no, what was the last book I read and absolutely loved? It was, there have been several that I absolutely adored recently. Um, and I've been reading a lot of spy novels. I think the main spy novel I loved that I got to the end of and then I listened to the audiobook because I loved reading it so much I wanted to hear it again in a different way was The Honorable Schoolboy by John le Carre which is is not one of his books that a lot of people have read and it, no. it starts out no. a lot of it's set in Hong Kong and it is like John le Carre books can be really dense and really hard to get through. And this one just absolutely trips along. I don't know what he was doing, but it flies. And the characters, he introduces them and they're all extremely eccentric. It's set in Hong Kong before it's handed over to China. And it's got an international array of characters and they are all mysterious. Nobody can be trusted. It's all, there's a, there's crime happening. There's espionage happening. 
it's just, it's so fun. Um, there's horse racing happening. Like, it's just like this mix <laughs> of stuff and it all, <laughs> it all happens. And there's like this, these kind of exotic, unusual settings. And it goes back and forth to various countries in that Lucare way. And I just, I do really love that book. I finished it and just immediately wanted to read it again. I don't think I've ever listened to one of his books and I'm interested because mm. in I suspect they lend quite well to an audio book. Yes. Mm. I think it's, it's better in many ways. Some of them, especially some of the trickier ones are, are just a little bit easier to follow, oddly, yeah. if a very nice man with a gorgeous voice is reading them yeah. to you. <laughs> that always helps, to be fair. <laughs> exactly. Speaking of books that you love, what book would you be buried with? Mm. Oh, it's so tricky because I kind of want to be buried with Dorothy Parker books because I love Dorothy Parker so much. But I think that we got a little snide after a while to be buried for all eternity <laughs> with a really bitter <laughs> New Yorker. Um, I think I would choose The Secret History by Donna Tartt, which Great is the book, book I, I've read it the most times of any book as an adult. I've read it at least five times. And every time I pick it up and read it again, the first opening chapters just make me like, it's just like, ah. Here we go. Yeah. We're, we're going into this land of dark mystery and um, fascinating, adorable characters who you love, even though they're murderers. And it's just, how do you do that? Like, it's just masterful. I love it. It is such a beautiful book. And I always find it fascinating. People talk about the goldfinch more than they talk about that one, because it feels mm. so much richer to me, I think. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. The goldfinch, I get it. I can see it as a beautiful piece of art. Mm. But the secret history, those characters feel like people I've actually met. And to me, that is always, that is always, and the setting is just, ugh, it's just this tiny, small, private, a liberal arts college in the snow, in the middle of winter, in the mountains, in the Northeast, cut off from the rest of the country. And it just feels like, ooh, how wonderful. <laughs> That's the sort of comfort novel you want, I think, when you're already dead and buried. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> We can always put Dorothy Parker into like line the rest of the coffin if you want, just for a yeah. bit of variety. Yeah, take it all, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. You want to keep a sense of humour in the afterlife, yes. Exactly. <laughs> so, and the last question that we always ask everyone is, what would your death row meal be? This is actually really easy because my favourite meal is, is very, because I lived in Texas as a child. And um, so I still have Texas food habits. So my favorite would be cheese enchiladas. With Love that. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So just, just that? Any sides? Any dessert? Oh, yeah. or... No, it should come with tortilla chips and salsa from a restaurant in Houston called um, La Hacienda, if people don't mind at the prison, if they could just send that food from there. If you could commit your crime there, that would make it a lot easier, convenient. <laughs> Not in the restaurant necessarily, maybe. That's true. It is actually extremely easy to get on death row in Texas. So. <laughs> there you go. That's true. Horrifying me. <laughs> yeah. I like that you had an immediate and specific answer to that. Normally when we ask people, there's a lot of umming and ahhing and people don't want to commit to what, you know, I mean, it's not like we're going to hold As them As if we're actually it. putting them yeah. to death. <laughs> Taste them down, force feed them and then, um, yeah. So yeah, I like that you committed to that. <laughs> it's it's my go-to. It would definitely be my go-to for us. Any, what would you like to eat? Cheese enchiladas, thank you. <laughs> How do the cheese enchiladas in the UK compare to home? I want to say they're just as good. I want to give you that gift, but I cannot. <laughs> no. I was going to say, I wasn't expecting you to. <laughs> I guess so. we now know that the next book's coming, which is really exciting. Are you working on anything else that you can tell us about or is it all top secret at this point? <gasps> 
we are at the moment we're editing it we're editing book two and i am working on the outline for book three so it is all it's all moving sort of my left hand is doing one thing and my right hand is doing the other wow you you and your husband jack Jewers, who we're also going to speak to very soon she's very exciting are um you guys are always busy doing something incredibly cool and interesting and you know you've got so many projects on the go I'm completely in awe of you both and everything that you when I spoke with Sarah when I met them at, uh, at Harrogate I just felt like incredibly lazy and incompetent by comparison <laughs> <laughs> everything you have going on like how do you juggle everything that you work on oh it is um okay so it is a little tricky but it is about timing so I mean, as long as, because I also, Jack and I run a publishing imprint called Moonflower Books, which we um, started uh, two years ago. And we publish books by other people. And also, like, if I write another young adult novel, I'd probably publish it that way. Like, there's, we can publish our own. We publish several other writers. We're about to publish The Coming Darkness by Greg Moss. And um, last year, we published um, Blue Running by Laurie Stevens. And we just look for you know, these like clever, innovative, fun, exciting, slightly out of center um, novels. And I suppose even though it does make things tricky, I try to edit myself no more than one book a year for Moonflower. But then I work with the editors who edit the books I don't edit. It's just like the striking a balance because normally it takes three months to write a first draft of a novel for me and then six weeks to go back and edit that before I send it in and there's a lot of waiting around after that because editors are doing their thing and you know it takes that can take months and Mm. so during that those months when I'm waiting well then I'll go edit a book by someone else and that um, also it feels really nice to not be the one who has to go make all those changes I (laughs) I don't have to go do that I consider editing to be the easy work personally (laughs) yeah we are very different people because all I could think was, oh, brilliant. So you get some downtime off three months of writing. <laughs> I do nothing. I wouldn't even get dressed. <laughs> are you even have... dressed right now, Sarah? <laughs> just, just about, only because I had video calls today. <laughs> <laughs> I've tried that. I tried it with like my first series, just writing that series. Mm. And I ended up writing like a book every nine months. So just like rushing the series along because I just get bored so yeah this way I can and I've tried juggling so writing a YA novel while I'm waiting for my adult novel to be edited and that I found really hard because my brain doesn't switch easily between worlds so then I thought oh editing that's that I can do that will that will pass some time (laughs) so I have to ask as well I should have asked this before but with a with a book series in particular, where you've got this massive world building up, like you said, your background characters have backstories. And how do you even begin to keep track of that? Are you a kind of physical writer or down person? Is it all sitting in your head like some mad genius? I'm definitely not a mad genius. I definitely have a spreadsheet. <laughs> okay, brilliant. Love it. I did it with my first few books and then I once spent like three hours trying to figure out if I identified the eye color of one of my right. characters <laughs> so I could match it I couldn't remember and after that I'm like right that's it spreadsheet yeah <laughs> so just to make just for things like that and if I put in a if I add a scar to somebody or a, a a backstory just a thing in their backstory that I want to come back to that goes on the spreadsheet it's actually a, a pretty slim spreadsheet it's just the things I need to remember and I don't want to have to look up god the whole world runs on excel doesn't it it's amazing <laughs> it does. that's absolutely true fiction certainly does brilliant <laughs> thank you little peek behind the curtain <laughs>
Ava Glass, it's been so wonderful speaking to you. Thank you so much for your time. And genu- it's so nice as well. I was saying to Sarah, when we were messaging about this. It was so nice to read a book and genuinely be completely into it. Like it's a five tombstone for us. So really, really excited to speak to you. And I know it's already out everywhere, right? It's, uh, it's out in the UK currently. Is it out in the US as well? It is, yes. It's out in the US and Canada. So, and Australia, I believe. So, and the rest of the world, uh, certainly Europe, is coming out this autumn. Amazing. I have to say, not just us raving about it when I was researching it as well, the reviews seem unanimously fantastic that I was Mm. reading. So, highly recommended from all fronts, clearly. (laughs) You are good, turns out. Yes. (laughs) Well, there you go. This book at least doesn't completely suck. So, I (laughs) do you not want to put that on the cover? Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it. A sharp quote from me. <laughs> Could be worse, Ava. <laughs> Not my worst work. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I say, if that's your worst work, then God, I can't imagine what your <laughs> lower minds open. But yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, Thank it's been you. a real pleasure. Oh, it's been really fun, guys. Uh, anytime you want me back, I'll come back. Oh, well. Excellent. Well, the second you publish book two in the series, we are waiting yes. for it now. So, Hooray. Yeah. careful what you wish for. You will yes, yeah. every no week. escape now. <laughs> exactly. Great. Thanks a lot. Thank well, you. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please do. Oh, also, Ava, where can everyone follow you on social media so they can see more of your work? Of course, I'm on um, Twitter and on Insta as Ava Glass Books. Perfect. Thank you. And we're also on social media, Sarah, at Red and Buried Podcast. Yes, exactly what I was going to say. Sarah forgets the name of the podcast quite regularly. <laughs> so. Yeah, I've, I've not fine. got many talents in life, let's face it. <laughs> hey, you're dressed. This is great. Yes, I put on clothes. You're welcome. So <laughs> cool. So yes, follow us, follow Ava on all the social media channels. And thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. 100 years since Nosferatu first terrified audiences on the big screen. 30 years since Francis Ford Coppola gave us Bram Stoker's Dracula. And um, 10 years since Dark Shadows with Johnny Depp. Vampire Videos is a podcast taking a look at this iconic blood-sucking monster on film and television. I'm Dan Owen. And I'm Hugh McStay. And we're here to guide you through a century of vampirism on film. From Hollywood's golden age with Bela Lugosi as Count Dracula. To the more lurid hammer horrors of the 60s and 70s starring Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Through to the 80s boom in vampires which brought these creatures of the night into the modern age. And everything this century's had to offer us. From foreign and independent films, spoof comedies and even teenage love stories. Yes, I'm talking about Twilight. We aim to cover it all one bite at a time. So join us on a voyage into the depths of vampire cinema, old and new, with weekly guests offering their own insights and expertise. And why not follow us on Twitter at Vamp Videos? A proud part of the We Made This Podcast Network. Subscribe now to Vampire Videos and thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening.